Turn in your Bibles, please, if you're visiting. We do more than that. Um, go to the Gospel of John. <laughs> go to the Gospel of John, chapter 6 and verse 1. And if you're visiting, I'll just tell you that we started in chapter 1, verse 1. We've made our way through. This is our 35th or so time uh, in the Gospel. And um, we're going to take a big chunk today. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 1. And this is God's Word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. Signs uh, is John's word for miracles. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not uh, buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray one more time. Uh, Father, uh, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, there were commercials on TV that would go like this. How do you handle a hungry man? The man handler. Hungry man, he needs a lot of food, so you give him the man handler, sloppy joes. Um, You remember, uh, uh, what was it, Hungry Jack Biscuits? And the the mom would go, hungry! (laughs) And uh, you'd hear, more biscuits, mom. In fact, by the way, when we visited the Vatican in Rome, and you're leaving out, out of the tour, and they're dinging the bells, and this is where all the people sit, and the Pope's up here and all that. They're going, ding, 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 ding. I went, hungry! More biscuits, Mom! Uh, just to desecrate the place. But anyway, because it's a cult. But anyway, um, the, the story about us, uh, before us, is about hunger, and uh, one of the things I love about this story that, that's, that's kind of enlightening, even as you go through it, you know, you tend to think of, you know how when people take communion, they, they, the girls are very dainty and they take, a little, they take a little bit and then people who are afraid of germs take it from the back and then it's just this little, this little morsel. And I think that we tend to import that activity into this. But it says that everybody ate their fill and uh, they had as much as they wanted. And then they, they came around with these not, not tiny little things, but rugged baskets, and they had uh, 12 extra baskets full of stuff, and everybody had their fill. And, and so this is about hunger, but don't rush past it. Somehow, Jesus miraculously made bread 
out of bread, just like he made wine out of water back at that wedding at Cana at the beginning of his, uh, at the beginning of his, his, his uh, uh, ministry. But the, the, the message is much more than a physical need. There's a spiritual aspect of it that is most important. Um, in chapter 18 of this gospel, it, Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. He's under arrest. Uh, but my kingdom is not of this world. Beloved, it is a spiritual kingdom that Jesus came to set up. Not an earthly government, but a spiritual kingdom. And at the end of our passage, it says that they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. And so Jesus withdraws. Why did he withdraw? He withdrew because his time had not yet come and they were getting it all wrong. They thought that he was setting up an earthly kingdom, but he wasn't here to set up an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom, right? And I'll tell you, just as a, a contemporary touch point, um, that, that's a, this, is, this is very relevant for today because... Um, Governmental systems are not going to fix the sin problem. They're not going to fix the peace problem. They're not going to fix the love problem. They're not going to fix the murder problem. The answer to those things is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the spiritual kingdom that is set up and the salt and light within the world. And eventually a day will come when all things are set aright. But just to, just to, just to, to show you the point, look at verse 25 of the same chapter, just to skip ahead a little bit. Um, uh, the, the disciples, this is after something that happens next week. You know, they're out on the lake and there's a storm and Jesus comes to them and all that. But in verse 25 of the same, same chapter, it says, they find Jesus on the other side of the lake. They say, Rabbi, why did, why, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, all right? So the crowd goes around the lake. They walk around the lake. They find him. Um, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. You see what Jesus focuses on is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom, a spiritual one. Um, it, it goes on and on. Um, the, the, the Son of Man will give it to you, for on him the, uh, God the Father has set a seal. And they say, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answers them. This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. So then they say, oh, what kind of sign are you going to perform? What kind of works are you going to perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness and so on. Um, and Jesus says to them in verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is making reference to himself. And so he says, they, they say, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. You get it? It is a spiritual kingdom. It's not the physical bread. It is Jesus coming down. I am the bread of life. Uh, the point is this, ladies and gentlemen, the main idea. Jesus can meet the need of the hungriest spirit. And you notice that I use spirit. I, I had heart up there, but I was like, you know what? It's a spiritual kingdom. Let's punctuate the thing. Um, Jesus can meet the need of the hungriest spirit. I wonder if you have a hungry spirit here today. I wonder if your soul is longing for things that are beyond this life, things that are spiritual in nature, I wonder. All right, let's look at three points. The first one is a Passover proposition. Um, verse one, it says, um, 
After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, don't let that trip you up. Um, Have you ever noticed that lakes and places and things can have more than one name? Uh, The Sea of Galilee was also known as the Sea of Tiberias from the other direction. It's also known as the Sea of Kinnereth or Kinnereth or Chinnereth, depending on how old or what version you're reading. Um, Gennesaret, the Lake of Gennesaret. It's it's got a bunch of different names. But uh, so Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, um, and it says in verse 2 that a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus goes up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And here it is in verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now that little thing right there shed some light on verse 1. Verse 1, as, as it often happens in, the, in a, a historical narrative, it'll say, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the sea. Well, is it the same day? Uh, how much time has elapsed and so forth? It's probably about six months. If it's the time of the Passover, judging from where chapter 5 probably is, not absolutely positively, but where it probably is, this is probably about six months later. So about six months later and about a year before Jesus is crucified, uh, this event is taking place. Now, um, you got the scene thus far? The crowds are following Jesus with great interest and um, so great, in fact, that, that the text tells us that they are spending Passover with Jesus. And Jesus sees this huge crowd coming and uh, for dear humanity's sake, he sees them and uh, they know, he knows that they would need sustenance at some point. They're coming out to this, this uh, faraway place and um, that, that they would need sustenance. In fact, Luke, Luke's gospel, all four gospels have this story. Luke's gospel says that uh, later on that the day began to wear away. All right, so they, they, were, got, they were gonna get hungry. The day began to wear away. Um, in Mark, it says... Um, when, they, when it grew late, uh, they said to him, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. All right, so this crowd is coming. Jesus is sizing the whole thing up. He knows exactly what's gonna happen. He and his love knows that these people are gonna need sustenance. And so he's got a little plan. And um, it's, a, it's more than a little plan. It's a really awesome plan. And it says this in verse five. Lifting up his eyes, he sees the large crowd coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test Philip because he knew what Philip was going to do. So it's not like Jesus was fishing for information or Jesus was asking for advice from Philip about this. Jesus was setting Philip up for a little spiritual lesson. Now, there are all kinds of silly imaginings about why it might be Philip. Um, you know why I think it's Philip? Have no idea. It just was Philip. Um, and by the way, sometimes, um, you know, all that really matters is that Jesus was talking to a real person. Um, Philip was an historical person. He was in Jesus' circle of, of disciples and friends, um, and Jesus is talking to somebody. And, and one, one of the awesome things about that is it tells us, first of all, that Jesus was relational and is relational. Jesus was personal. Um, also, that Jesus would do what was best for a person. I mean, he's not doing this to, uh, to trip Philip up or uh, confuse him or humiliate him. He's trying to show something to Philip's soul and through that show something to the disciples' souls and ours. 
And so he's doing this in love, what's best for the person. He wants Philip to flourish. And uh, the other cool thing about this is that when you see details like this, that Jesus turned to Philip, why Philip? Oh, I wonder why Philip. We don't know. But what it does is it validates the reality of scriptures. It happened to be Philip. Philip's in the story. If you were making it up, you'd, you'd probably want to jazz it up and, and, uh, and, and all that. But this is a real story. All right. One more thing of interest, uh, just so you're not puzzling over it. Um, when Philip answers in verse 7, you know, Jesus says, where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? And, and, uh, and uh, Philip's like, well, he's just thinking it out. He goes, well, 200 denarii would not even buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Um, just so that doesn't trip you up and you go, now, what is that again? And what, what, how much is that and all that? Um, a denarius was the most common Roman coin. It was the most common means of payment. And... Rather than say, well, that was worth $14 or $17 or $8.50 an hour or whatever to our, to our terms, rather than do that, it's better to say that a denarius was in this time about a day's wage. All right, so Philip is saying, hey, if somebody worked 200 business days, all right, so think about your life. What are you worth per hour again? Wow, some of you, look at you. 200 business days, um, how, how much money would that be? Well, that would just be enough to give everybody a tiny little bite. I mean, it just was, it was nothing. Um, and, and by the way, um, note also in verse 10, it says, um, uh, Jesus says, make the people sit down. Uh, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, take no offense, ladies, but that's how things were, that's how things were back then. When it says the men sat down, that's about equivalent to saying, all the households sat down. I mean, you had the dude and his wife and family, and they counted the dude. So when it says that 5,000 dudes were there, you can, you can put all the missuses in there. That's 10,000. And you can put all the little kids in there. That's probably a lot more. So there, you're talking about a lot of humanity. Uh, we're not talking about our sanctuary that seats about 1,000. We're talking about Bellevue Sanctuary. So think of Bellevue Sanctuary or more. More. <laughs> um, and um, so Philip is going, hey, even if, we, even if we work 200 days, we couldn't even do this. And so you have an impossible uh, situation at hand, all right? So where may we, may we buy bread that the people may eat? Here's how I'd love to apply this to your life. Um, you know, Jesus says this to Philip, and Philip has an answer, and then this miracle happens and so on, and then the, the dialogue with Philip is, is over, but I think there's an application that could be made. Um, again, there's no, there's no way of knowing why Jesus chose Philip, but Philip had to have been thinking about this. <laughs> he had to have been thinking about this later. Uh, Jesus, hey, uh, <clears throat> hey, Philip, where are we to buy bread for all these people uh, to eat? And Philip's like, well, gosh, Jesus, <laughs> that's pretty much impossible. <laughs> wow. And later... Philip had to have been thinking about that vividly as this is all unfolding, going, wow, the, the impossible was just made possible by the Savior. And that is the point, ladies and gentlemen. That is the, the first and simple uh, application for your life. And it is a powerful one, that nothing is impossible with God, nothing. All right, next point. A Passover picture. Now, we come to a little bit of a... Uh, 
theological dust-up at this point, I must tell you, and it has to do with typology. That is, um, things in the Old Testament that specifically point to things in the New Testament. You ever heard that? Typology, uh, that so-and-so is a type, that Joshua is a type of Savior, that Moses is a type of Deliverer. Um, you can say that with the sacrificial system, too, that it's a type. Um, it it uh, points towards something, it points toward the, the, the reality. The type points toward the anti-type. You understand that? The type is not the real thing. The anti-type is the real thing. It's anti-the type. There's 0% type in the real thing. The type points to the anti-type, all right? And so... Um, <laughs> There, there, there's, there's, I think, a type here. And uh, some people disagree with uh, this position, but uh, many, many, many don't. Uh, if you've ever sung, um, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, Guide Me, Oh, Thou Great Jehovah. Like that song? Pilgrim through this barren land. Hmm, barren land. What does that sound like? Wilderness wanderings? Uh, let the fire and cloudy pillar... I mean, that sounds like a type, doesn't it? Land me safe on Canaan's side. Well, that, that, that hymn is a type, is, is, is typology. So is, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. That's a type. And now some people disagree uh, about types, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second. But there are several categories of types in the Bible. Is this new information to a lot of you? I bet it is. Um, there are several categories of types in the Bible. Um, one of them, there's a word, there's a Greek word that means type. Um, and you, you might find that in Romans 5, 14, where Adam is a figure of him that was to come. All right? So Adam is a type of another figure who's to come, which is Jesus, the, the second Adam. Um, Melchizedek would be another one of those types. Moses would be another one of those types. Joshua would be another one of those types. Uh, here's another one. Another Greek word means shadow. And uh, so uh, of the Mosaic system, it says in Colossians 2 that that was a shadow of things to come. There's another word that means copy. There's another word uh, uh, that means parable. Um, in Hebrews 9.9, 9, it speaks of the temple, symbolic for this present age. It's kind of a parable of this present age. And then there's another one, uh, which means figures or copies or true likeness. And in Hebrews 9.23, um, it talks about copies of the heavenly things. First Peter 3 talks about corresponds to, all right? So you have these different words that, that mean uh, kind of the same thing. They're in the same family of thinking, um, that uh, things in the Old Testament point to greater realities in the, in the new, okay? Those are types. Now, those can be seen in some respect in, in these different things. Persons, especially like redemptive figures. Um, places, for instance, uh, Egypt um, is a type, right? What happened in Egypt? The Israelites were in bondage, were they not? Captivity, slavery, a different dominion, a different government. Well, that's a type, um, that, that makes us think about the gospel and where we are now. It's a type of talking about, it's a way of talking about sin and being in sin and being delivered and so on. So a place like Egypt would fall into that category. How about Jerusalem or Zion? Jerusalem or Zion, that's the church. It's ultimately um, our, our, our heavenly home. Uh, so that's a type. Same thing with Babylon. Babylon's a type for, uh, for um, you know, uh, 
um, apostasy. Uh, there are also items like a brazen serpent put up on a, a pole or the tabernacle. Uh, how about creation? Creation is a type. You know, uh, Jesus is the light of life. You've got Noah. You've got manna falling from the sky and so on. Uh, you've, got, you've got physical things. Offices, prophet, priest, and king. You've got actions like sacrifices, the Passover itself, covenant making and all that. So there are lots of types in the Old Testament that point to things in the New Testament. Uh, and here's the tricky thing. You, there are extremes, okay? And I think I've got a balanced view of, of this particular situation, okay? Other people may disagree, but this is a, this is a tried and true, longstanding, solid uh, theological position, okay? But what you have to avoid with types are the crazy, whacked-out extremes. Whacked-out extreme number one, in my view, is that people will only... Um, see something as a type if it's, there's an explicit mentioning in the, old, in the New Testament about it. This is a type. Mm. This corresponds to mm. But it seems like there's lots of logical, sensible types that I've just listed that I think every Christian would go, oh, yeah, I see that. Mm, yeah, I see that. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, an extreme is to, is to limit types to only what is specifically mentioned in the New Testament, all right? But the other extreme is this. And you've heard me rail on this a zillion billion times. It's a sweet old country pastor. They wants to talk about the water in the well in which Jeremiah was placed. That water was Jesus. Oh, wait a second. No, it wasn't. It was stinky water. That's bad illustration. The, the, um, the well, let's see, the well was Jesus. No, the well wasn't Jesus. Um, you see what I mean? If you want to, if you want to typify every little thing, like you know, you go to the, old, the you go to the Old Testament and you say, um, uh, God called for, uh, David called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. Um, oh yes, build. Let's talk about build. We'll talk about building all day today, and uh, and you turn every little thing into a type. That's insane, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so you go into cuckoo land when you do that. It's kind of like David and his five stones. You ever heard a, a, pre, a sermon on the five stones? Stone number one stands for truth. It does. It's a stone. Stone number three is salvation. It is. That's cuckoo talk. All right? So you've got extremes where you've got the, the, the limitations that are too severe, and then you've got cuckoo talk, which is turning every little thing, is spiritualizing every little thing. Sometimes a wheel is a wheel. Uh, sometimes Philip is Philip. All right, so all that to say, uh, notice what we read earlier um, in, in our passage here in verse uh, 32. Jesus says to, you, says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. Well, I mean, now you're talking about bread. Well, you, what I'm saying to you is that there's a grand type here, I believe, a grand type. Notice that you've got Moses showing up after this scene. Notice what was happening before this account. Um, Jesus says in uh, verse 45 of chapter 5, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. I think the gospel writer John is writing in a very specific way. His, his focus is on the divinity of Jesus Christ. He does not want us to miss that. He, he has a very short period of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then they're in the upper room discourse Hours from the cross, from, from 13 on, chapter 13 on. 
And so what he fits in is very specifically placed there. And I think that he's got a grand type in mind that he's trying to say, this Jesus and his activity is very much like Moses and his activity. A people in bondage, a deliverer rises up, um, a, a deliverer that rescues the people from captivity and takes them into a land of promise and so on. Um, in, uh, in chapter 635, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And uh, how about this? In chapter 737, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. How about this? In verse 812, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I don't know about you, but that sounds like another uh, redemptive figure, uh, some guy named Moses, doesn't it? Um, who led God's people by a guiding light, uh, who provided water for God's people by God's power. Um, manna comes from the sky. Doesn't it sound like a lot like this Moses figure? I think it does. I think it's quite intentional. How about this? The Passover motif. I mean, my goodness, we're at Passover again. Jesus has been at Passover before. Uh, the next Passover, Jesus is gonna die. Um, how about this? They're in a remote location. Other gospels call it a lonely place. Luke nine twelve calls it a desolate place. Now, remember, there's lots of grass there and so on. It was an assembly, a meeting of the people with God and so on. But they're out in a desolate place. Why do the gospel writers say a desolate place? Does it not sound a little bit like wilderness wanderings? You don't want to press it too hard. But doesn't it sound like a Moses type, a Moses picture? How about this? The, the Israelites, Jesus says, um, make the people sit down. There's much grass. The men sat down. Um, and uh, other gospels tell us the, the way they sat down. It's almost kind of like encamping like the Israelites did. And look at them now. Uh, John 1.14, it says, uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. I mean, that sounds very typish, doesn't it? And how about manna um, comes from the one who calls himself the bread of life. Uh, Jesus says, uh, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's Jesus. They said, give us this bread, Lord. Um, I am the bread of life, says Jesus. All right, tuck that all away. And let's look at the miracle itself in, chapter, in verse eight. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, there's a boy here, uh, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Uh, it's kind of like, look, I know this is stupid, but we got five loaves and two fish, but that's not gonna do anything. <laughs> Just throwing it out there, basically what he's saying. And Jesus says, make the people sit down. So they do. All the thousands, in an orderly way. Jesus takes the loaves when he had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, and listen, as much as they wanted. You know, I, I found for man cake, I was looking for like a manly picture of men eating. And uh, I found this picture of these guys just snarfing down on bread. And I was not able to find it again. It's within, you know, you know how you look for pictures and it's like thousands of pictures, you know. But it was like these like hooligan-looking dudes from the 1800s just gnawing on bread. You know, there was some ale on the table too, I think, but they're just like, Arr. bread was dinner. And they're not just having a little bit of bread. They're just eating bread, 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 bread. Um, that's what they're doing here. They've eaten as much fish as they could eat. They've had as much bread as they could eat. They had their fill. So it's not like they were just taking little bits. And mm -hmm. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They all have their fill. And, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an element that's easy to, what time is it? Easy to miss in this story. That 
I think it would have been a powerful illustration to the disciples and to everybody else to have all those people going, Ugh, you know, we're not exactly a German down culture over here. And, uh, you know, when you get a big old meal like that, it's pretty good. They're, 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 they're satiated. Is that the right word, satiated? Yeah. Um, uh, they're full. And uh, that, that's, a, that's a powerful uh, illustration of this uh, of this. Of this miracle, the validation of this miracle. So you, you come out to the place where you've got nothing. This is the application. You come out to the place where you've got nothing and you get something. It was impossible for you to get it, but somehow God made it possible. That is the gospel message, friend. It was the message to Nicodemus about his spiritual condition. It was the message to the woman at the well about her spiritual condition. It was the message to the rich young ruler, which he did not buy into. It was the message to these 5,000 people, and it is the message to you. If you want the bread that will fill your soul, if you want the bread that will make your spirit satiated and satisfied, um, come to this Jesus. He's the only one. It's impossible But with God, nothing is impossible. All right, our last point, a uh, Passover in perception. Verse 14, um, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're thinking of either um, uh, Elijah in Malachi, but most likely they're thinking of the biggie, their their big guy. Don't turn, but let me just get there real fast. This is in uh, Deuteronomy 18. It says, uh, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from among you, uh, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Um, uh, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. Whoever will not listen to my words... uh, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God is saying that this, this Moses figure, there's going to be another one. And uh, so they're probably thinking, speaking of an Exodus motif, they're probably thinking quite of Moses. When the people saw this sign, they go, this is indeed the prophet who is the coming of the world. They're thinking about Moses. I think we probably should too. But they were crafting in Jesus into the idol that they wanted him to be. They wanted deliverance from Roman occupation. They go, oh yeah, Egypt, remember when we were in slaves in Egypt? Egypt? Well, now Rome's taking over everything. And so now we're under Roman rule and we want to get out from under Roman rule. We want to be, we want to be God's free people again. And they think, oh, well, Jesus is going to be the guy who breaks up this governmental system and we're going to be free and we're going to occupy and we're going to do all these things and get out from under here. But as Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, application for us, uh, Rome is not the answer. Um, uh, Globalism isn't the answer. Trump isn't the answer. Uh, The answer is the monarch, Jesus Christ. The answer is the one who has absolute say with godly wisdom and and justice at all times. The answer is Jesus. That's the answer that we're all searching for. Um, I I close with this because we're out of time. Um, One writer wrote this. The main message is that Jesus is the savior for all who long to be freed from sin and its bondage. 
who feel a hunger in their souls and who look for a deliverer to guide them to heaven. You want a shorter version of that? It's this. Jesus can meet the need of the hungriest spirit. And that is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you and remember that you are monarch, that you are king, that you are the head of the church, that you are the church's founder and foundation uh, and ruler and supplier. And uh, we rejoice in that. And, and we thank you for stories like this that have been recorded for our benefit, that we might get a greater glimpse into the way our God operates and the sufficiency of the Savior he sent. Might that be pressed into our hearts this morning, Lord. And I pray for every soul in this room. I pray that their hunger might be met by you, O oh God. Satisfy in the gospel of Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody.